This show is brought to you by Ridley College. Welcome to the Now and Not Yet. The show where we keep you plugged into all things happening in Bible and theology. I'm Mike Bird and I'm pixelated. As we kick things off, our favourite movie and worst movie. For me, favourite movie has to be Return of the Jedi. And I also like Schindler's List. Worst movie ever. This is the one I threaten to force my boys to watch if they don't stop fighting, which is how Stella got her groove back, which is about how an African-American woman realizes she doesn't need a man in her life and she just learns to love herself first of all. Okay, and why is Return of the Jedi your favorite movie? It's, I, th- I think it's loosely based on my life. I, I kind of am the Luke Skywalker of biblical studies. I don't know whether you're Scott, but I'm, I'm kind of a big deal. <laughs> okay. Not very humble, not very humble. Uh, my favorite movie is Apocalypse Now. It's a movie about what, what happens to people under conditions of war. And it's a movie about horror and perception and how you never know really what's going on. It's, it's a wonderful study in psychology. Um, it's a study about the past. It's a, it's a brilliant movie. I could go on for, for hours and hours. Um, I don't really have a, a movie that I strongly dislike. Um, and I've been exposed to lots of films because we have a big family. So I'm someone who generally enjoys a good film. Um, but Apocalypse Now is, is really a film that changed my life. What about God's Not Dead 4? Hillary Clinton's <laughs> Revenge? What about that one? I don't know what to say, mate. Okay, well, you know, God not dead. God's not dead for Hillary Clinton's revenge. I think has got to be the worst one. Okay, does that exist? No. No. Okay. But if it did exist, it would be the worst one. Okay, fair enough. But now and not yet. So, Mike, good news. I've uh, had a paper accepted at the big medieval conference that goes on. Um, in the English-speaking world. It's the International Medieval Congress in Leeds. And uh, I'm really pumped. I'm providing a paper there on, on the work that um, virtuous Christians did in the 1200s. Um, so there I'm going to head off as Dr. Scott Harrower representing Ridley College. Um, but I've also been asked, um, am I representing Dr. Scott Harrower as a he or a she? What do you reckon I should do with my personal pronouns? So that they've asked you to provide your personal pronouns. Yes. Yeah, this is something I'm a little bit ambivalent about. Because on the one hand, I can understand for people who are like um, trans, you know, transgender, you know, trans woman, trans man, people who maybe uh, identify as gender non-binary, they they don't identify with the stereotypes of male and female, certain types of intersex. uh, I can understand how people would want to put forward their pronouns to make sure they're uh, addressed the way they want to be treated. Um, But I do worry that beyond that, it also has a certain anti-biology or anti-science thing going on. Let let me explain. So it's one thing for people who are a little bit different or or people who would dress and present themselves differently. But behind that, are, are people saying, look, biology is not real. Biology like humans are a sexually dimorphic species uh, who procreate through the congress of male and female, is that just a social fiction, okay? Is that something we can argue can be deconstructed and redefined any way we like? Can we ambiguate uh, human biology to the point that it needs someone to explain who they are? So I think, you know, providing your pronouns, if you're, you know, transgender or 
gender non-binary or one of those sort of exceptional things. But when you make it normal or, or even normative, uh, it, it can become a problem. And in fact, there was a court case in Canada where there was uh, a Canadian lawyer of, uh, I believe, of, of, of Iranian descent, and she was at a court, and this court, their policy was everyone has to provide their gender pronouns. Right. And she refused. She refused to provide her gender pronouns, and she got in trouble for it. Now, there was a whole bunch of discussion in Canadian law journals uh, about this. There was, you know, accusations of bigotry and everything, but she refused to provide her gender pronouns. So... And this is where I think we're, this is what this is what bugs me. It's going to be something that's not just an optional in. You know, in, in, if you want to, we, we'll treat you the way you want to be treated. Tell us your pronouns. Mm. Now it's going to be tell us your pronouns. And if you don't, there could be some uh, punitive measures at the end. So it's that it's the sort of the sort of gender authoritarianism and the sort of anti-biology view behind it that, that kind of concerns me a bit or makes now, me were ambivalent. There, were there consequences for her? Were there real consequences? Uh, I don't remember. I, I remember, but she, she basically said she was not going to provide her pronouns to this court, and there was all sorts of discussion about that. I think by the end of it, she didn't have to. I think she'd protested, and she won, I think, on the idea or the premise that this was coercive speech. Okay. You, you, you cannot coerce people to do things against their own conscience. But the threat was you're in contempt of court by not providing your personal pronouns. Yeah, and, and that's where right. I think we're going to increasingly end up. And I think certain jurisdictions like ours in Victoria, I could definitely see something like that becoming normative, that you can't participate in public uh, without stating your gender pronouns, mm. which I think is is kind of... To be honest, I think it's an upper middle class thing to demonstrate the loyalty to the progressive tribe. Yes, of course, there are people who are transgender and all sorts of things for whom you can fully understand why they would do it. And I'm very happy to engage in pronoun hospitality, treat people they want to be treated. But there is a little bit of an air of authoritarianism to this and a kind of anti-science thing mm. lurking that does concern me. Mm. What do you think, Scott? Final thought. Will you providing? Will you be providing your pronouns to the conference? Yeah, yeah, I am. Um, it, it's an issue, to be honest. I haven't thought about much, but I was just surprised that it was it was um, something that now. I mean, it used to be being a, having a PhD used to qualify me, and I'd give my bio and the college I work for. But now this is a new thing. So I, I, I don't know. I haven't really thought about it. That's why I was raising it. Well, if I was you, Scott, I would not provide my pronouns. Because I don't think they're actually asking for your pronouns. I think they're asking for a token act of obedience to a progressive anthropological project that potentially erases human biology. So it's anti-science, anti-biology, or it's at least premised on the idea that even our biological identifications or our biological mechanics are a social fiction. But hey, what do I know? Uh, what about you? Uh, what are your thoughts? Uh, would you give your pronouns if you were asked for them at a conference or an event or to speak somewhere? But now and not yet. Well, Scott, let's talk about something a little bit technical, the differences between biblical and systematic theology. Now, by training, by training, I'm more of a biblical theologian. You are. And you're a systematic yes. theologian. And I can say uh, I've seen what you do. And I want to say two things. Number one. You are very good at what you do. Okay. On Sounds the, like you're setting me up, but okay, On the downside, thank you. I just think that what you do is not worth doing. Oh, gosh. Why isn't it worth doing? 
I don't know. It's like, you know, you systematic theologians. I mean, you're always talking about all your categories and words. Like, I read a book by John Webster, okay, on the doctrine of Scripture. Yes. It doesn't mention Scripture. It's a book about the doctrine of Scripture. It does not quote Scripture. Okay. Do you see a problem here, Scott? Now, look, I'm not the crazy one here. I think you're the crazy one. You're systematic theologians. You just you just talk about stuff that's kind of like ephemeral and real. And it's like you're building castles in the sky, and the castle has its own castle with its own imaginary friends. So okay. it's so. So let, let's. So stick- I, I deal with earthly biblical. T- I, I have yeah. stuff. I have texts. Yeah. Sure. I have texts. You you just have stuff you make up. Okay. No, okay. I'm being facetious. I'm being facetious. No, he's not actually. Um, so the, the the big debate is you and biblical theology people claim that you can find threads and themes in the Bible and see how those threads and themes are worked out within biblical passages, within biblical books, and within the Bible as a whole. Okay. That approach to Scripture, it's a form of harmonizing that was developed by the church Years after these texts evolve, so it's a theological approach to texts. It's a result of systematic theology claiming that these are the words of God. The thing is, the Bible and biblical theology are building materials. They are sand and earth, as you described them, but they're building materials so that Christians can rightly describe things as they are. So we systematic theologians will use, to go back to that, example um, from John Webster, we use categories like Holy Scripture to describe the Bible because we say this text has been set apart by God, it's sanctified as a useful text that we call Holy Scripture by which he speaks to us. That is, yes, a systematic description, a systematic category that describes these select texts as a channel of God's working. Now, Some biblical theology people will go, well, not enough biblical proof texts were used in that book to get to that position. Often in systematic theology, you can describe the way things are with helpful categories that uses categories that aren't in the Bible. The word Trinity isn't in the Bible, for Mm -hmm. example. But Jesus says, go and baptize people in the one name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we derive the doctrine of the Trinity from texts, but we leave the texts behind as we clarify those concepts. That's a good way of putting it, a good way of putting it Scott. Um, I'm, I often ask questions in, in theology class, I like for an essay question. Um, can we dispense with systematic theology and just rely on biblical theology? No way. So that's, I mean, I agree. Uh, because it's one thing to say what the Bible says, uh, but you've then got to put the Bible in conversation with itself. So if you're talking about salvation, um, you know, you can say, well, Isaiah says this, Luke says that, Paul says this. Uh, Meh, just pick the one you like and run with it. Yeah. I mean, you don't want to do that. You want to say something that reflects the specificities of Isaiah, Luke, uh, and Paul, but come up with something that reflects all of them. And this is, this is a statement of what, I, I, what Karl Barth said, and I think it's a, a good summary. Exegesis is what does the text say? Theology is what do we say on the basis 
of all of the texts. Exactly. And that's where exactly. you, you have to go a little bit beyond. Otherwise, you can end up, first of all, with a really bad, naive proof texting method. Mm. But you've also got a synthesis. And theology is the synthesis where, we're, okay, we're looking at all of Scripture, not just our favorite bits, which is for Reformed evangelicals as Galatians and half of Romans. Yeah. No, we want to use the whole Bible. Okay. We also want to add to that insights from possibly from tradition, church history. Sure. Sometimes we've got to bring in science, like yeah. when we're doing with anthropo anthropology or cosmology yeah. when we're mm -hmm. looking in creation. And in light of all the evidence, the testimonies of, of uh, natural revelation and special revelation, we bring them all together. What do we say about human flourishing? What do we say about the doctrine of God? What do we say about missions or discipleship in light of all those things? So I, I, actually, I actually am pro-systematic theology. In fact, I do have to confess, Scott, one of the things that upsets me a little bit is when systematic theologians say to me about my evangelical theology. My evangelical theology is intended to be a systematic theology. And systematic theologians say to me, Michael, you've written a very good biblical theology. Oh, so in other words, I really like what you do, but it isn't good enough to be systematics. <laughs> Basically, yeah. You're very good at what you do, but what you do is not what we do. Not the real chief. So may maybe I'm a little bit dirty on that because I know these systematic theologians kind of look down on me like a guy who's trying to be a systematician. And to be honest, I'm not trained as a systematician. Um, Doesn't mean you can't do good systematics, though. Well, I, try I tried to write my evangelical theology because I wanted a... Um, a book that made the gospel the center boundary and integrating point of theology. Uh, I also wanted to create a kind of reformed evangelical alternative to certain other books on the market. Mm. Let the reader understand. And yeah, so that that's what I, I was I was kind of up to. And I I did learn that you know you can't just do theology as a kind of constant proof texting of stuff. You've got to do that real work of synthesis. And the challenge is, I think, tell me what you think of this phrase. The challenge is, how do we go beyond the Bible biblically? Sure. So um, that, that is the challenge. How do you go beyond the Bible biblically? And Kevin Van Hoos has written a lot about this. And there's been a, a movement in um, evangelical um, theology in the last 20 years to say, well, looks, let's look at how people in the past have done this, beginning with the earliest Christians. We move past the Bible by drawing the key theological judgments that are in the Bible into what's known as rules of faith. So there are summaries of the faith that we find within the Bible. And as we draw those summaries together, those summaries give us the framework for how to draw our theological claims together. So um, that's how people say we should go beyond the Bible whilst being biblical. It's to use the, the same kind of framework that the Bible gives us for moving forward. The problem is, though, that certain things aren't made clear. The summaries that we have in the early rules from the early church and in the creeds say very little about, for example, what it's, made, what it's like to be made in the image of God. But most theologians will say, well, being made in the image of God has something to do with a substantive aspect. You are in the image of God because God sees you and declares you as such. That never goes away. There's a relational aspect. There's a perceptive aspect. There's a moral aspect. There's a functional and creative aspect. Those aspects are drawn by looking at the whole Bible. And your question is, well, once you've described those four or five aspects, how do you fill them in going forward as you deal with science, 
history and philosophy, for example. This is when the systematician comes back in and they go, Michael, it's not just about drawing on the big claims within the Bible. It's about the systematic bit of systematic theology. What makes systematic theology systematic is once you have judgments from the Bible to do with, say, being in the image of God, you relate them to other points in theology. So you would relate your theology of persons made in the image of God to who God is himself to keep a check on those judgments that you have drawn from the Bible itself. So the connectivity within theology is really important for the systematic theologian. So that's a good point, Scott. So systematic theology is not some high-flung speculative thing. It's the attempt to uh, exegete or excavate from the Bible various judgments and then put those judgments in conversation. So, you know, how does your doctrine of God affect your doctrine of the church? So it tells us what the doctrines are and how do they reinforce and influence each other. Exactly. So, for example, the holiness of God is the foundation for the holiness of the church. So when we think of one holy Catholic and apostolic church, the holiness aspect needs to be informed by the holiness of God. If you're not making that systematic connection, then your definition of holiness in the church will be really, really impoverished. So the systematic theology would always implore you to make those connections. So um, people that are good at systematic theology tend to be people with engineering degrees because they see connections between things. Or they tend to be, like Kevin Van Hooser, musicians, because they know how symphonies and parts of music work together. It's this ability to see how the whole works that makes for a good systematic theologian. Now, you don't have to be an engineer or a musician to become a good systematic theologian. I was a nurse. You can learn how to do it. It's a matter of having, you know what, the right mentors. So one of the key things that I recommend to people is to read good systematicians like John Webster, for example, because he was very good at making those connections. Graham Cole is another brilliant systematician who draws heavily on biblical theology. It can be done. You can be good at both. And Mike, to be honest, I actually think you're good at both, mate. Thank you very much, Scott. Yes, take that, ETS theologians. Scott Harrow said I'm good, (laughs) kind of, sort of. Well, anyway, systematic and biblical theology shouldn't be rival siblings. They should be very good friends, holding hands, frolicking in the pastures of divine revelation. Teamwork. Hot off the press. It's time to review some books. I've been reading a few books, this time in practical areas. Practical okay. areas. Uh, one good little gem of a book is by Sam Chan. Uh, he's a good Aussie. Uh, how to Talk About Jesus. I've got a story about Sam Chan. Do you? Okay. Well, I, used to play, I used to play rugby in the States, and the uh, club I used to play for, the Warriors, had uh, when they welcomed me, they said, oh, great, another Australian. We hope you are just going to be like Captain Concussion. And I'm like, who's this Captain Concussion? I play hard, okay? And they said, oh, he's this, this Sam Chan bloke. He used to get concussed every game, and we'd have to drag him off the field and stop him from rejoining. And apparently he's a medical doctor, so he was fully aware of all the dangers of playing while concussed. So anyway, you're reading a book by Captain Concussion. Good on you. Well, that's good to know. It's good to know. Uh, this, I think, is probably one of the best books of evangelism I've read. Um, it's not like friendship evangelism. It's 
not kind of like this sort of cheesy thing. Um, it's, it's about, you know, how Christians cultivate friendships, how they have a presence in the world in a way that's going to lead to conversations about Jesus and the type of ways you can talk about Jesus that will not be off-putting. Um, I love his, his category of, um, of being kind of like a chaplain in your own workplace or in, in your own family. Um, I sometimes find myself playing that role, you know, in, in wider circles of friends and family. But how, how do you turn that as a way of talking about Jesus? Not in a way that's coercive or manipulative, but a way of speaking the, the grace of the gospel into people's lives. Uh, this is easily, I think, one of the best little books you can ever read on evangelism. Great. Another great book uh, is by Preston Sprinkle and is called Embodied. Uh, Transgender Identities, the Church, What the Bible Has to Say. Now, Preston Sprinkle is an amazing guy. He's a, he's a New Testament scholar. He's worked a bit with Francis Chan, written on, like, you know, uh, the doctrine of hell, that kind of a thing. Right. But Preston has really invested his life talking to various sexual minorities. He's talked to every type of LGBTIQ, every type of gay, bi, trans, intersex. And he's talking in this book about what's a Christian view of these topics, particularly about things related to transgender identities. Okay. And he's also read all the technical literature. He's read all the medical stuff about things like autogynophilia. Uh, he also knows stuff about late-onset congenital adrenal hyperplasia, if you know anything about intersex conditions. So, I mean, he, he gets into the, the, to the real detailed stuff, but he explains it in such a terrific way. And this is a, a, an approach, I think, to you know, what we would call broadly trans issues. That is, it's Christian. It's rooted in Christian principles. It's uh, compassionate as well. Uh, he's not there to judge or to put anyone down. He, he really wants to understand people and their unique experiences. But it's also very informed. He knows what the debates are in medical practice. He knows about all the medical terminologies. And if you only read one book about things like... Uh, you know, transgender identities, uh, this would be the number one book I would recommend. So if you're a little bit confused or you don't know how to get into that area, that's the place I would go. That's, that sounds like a great book, Mike. I think, to be frank, I find a lot of the terminology um, uh, new. Um, I don't have a good handle on it. And if someone can help me uh, navigate all the literature and the terminology. I think that sounds wonderful. Yeah, and, and it's also important because Preston says, look, you need to listen to the stories. You can't just say, well, you know, God made you a boy, so be a boy. Uh, it's way more complicated than that. And it's a really good read. And like I said, it's full of compassion, uh, biblical reflection. But, you know, again, it's really informed and probably the best thing I've read on the topic. Unreal. Great. Well, I've got some books that are hot off the press. Let me put on my gloves. Yeah, here we go. Let's go. Two hot off the press books. There we go. Oh, whoa, wow. Whoa, Fantastic. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay. Ah. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Super Fingers hot. Fingers are burned. Super hot. And you know what? Content-wise, these are super hot as well. Okay, now that they've cooled down. Okay, so we're dealing with the topic of the atonement. Atonement is the word that was used by Tyndale, one of the early translators of the Bible into English, for the Greek word reconciliation. So... Atonement means at one meant to bring to two parties at one, to bring them together as one. So it's, it's about God's work of reconciliation through the cross, right? And there's been a lot of debate recently about which are the leading biblical passages to do with the cross and its significance for bringing people and God back together. Which are the most important passages 
and therefore they will determine more than others what the cross is really about. So Mike, before I do the review, let me ask you, what are your favorite Bible passages to do with the cross and God's work of reconciliation? Well, I like Mark 10.45, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. I also like Romans 3.21 to 26, a bit of Romans 8.1 to 3, a bit of Galatians 3.13, and a bit of 1 Peter 2.21. Yes, off okay. Off the top of my head, so I've got a few passages filed away yep. to talk about the cross. So, for example, let's take that uh, 1 Peter 2 passage. Yep. We have within the space of a few verses the fact that Jesus dies for our sins, yep. but also that in his death, he leaves an example yep. of not resisting violence with violence. And there's also healing. There's also healing. Yep. So there's many aspects to what happens on the cross. How do we draw them together? So here we have two really good books. This first book is by Joshua McNall, friend of ours. And what he wants to do is he begins with the idea of a puzzle. How is it that you draw together different aspects of what God did in the cross to reveal the wonderful face of God and the work that God has done? But how do you do it not by falling into one of two errors? He says that there's two errors when we look at what the Bible says about the cross. One error is, is to say, oh, well, the cross is about God's example of extreme love and that moves us and changes us it could be about release from the devil could be healing could be forgiveness for sin you choose that's one error the other error is to go well actually there's one main thing that the cross is about with respect to reconciliation between god and human beings and let's just forget about all the other little bits he wants to say no you need to take it all together Know that some passages do have more systematic weight than others, especially the substitutionary atonement of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. Where does that fit in? And let's draw these passages together. So we, we were talking about systematic theology mm. earlier on. This is a good work of systematic theology because he's trying to see how there are systematic connections between everything that God achieves in the cross. So I, I recommend this book. Also, it's very helpful because he draws on a lot of Christian history and how the cross has been interpreted in the past. So I found that very helpful too. I mean, this basically, if you're teaching a class on the atonement and Christology, you should recommend this to your students. If you're a Bible study leader and uh, someone who's maybe a veteran Christian, I recommend this. This is good reading to refresh your theology on the cross and to encourage you as a Christian. Great book. Okay, now we move on to William Lane Craig's book on um, the atonement and the death of Christ. Basically, he wants to do what um, McNall wants to avoid. So William Lane Craig uh, has a PhD in philosophy and theology, very bright person, but what he wants to do is to drill down on how it can be that God has human beings reconciled to himself, how it is that God pardons people, based on Jesus going to the cross. How does that work? Mm. It's a dry book because it's a philosophical defense of a claim. So it's not as um, lively and faith-giving as this one, but at the end of the day, it pays off because it gives you confidence 
that the substitutionary death of Jesus is vital to what God does. However, if this is a key ingredient to your theology, you really need to read this book alongside it. There are some excellent sections in this book, especially the section on pardon. However, I find it was a little bit limited in that it doesn't really engage with everything that God did on the cross. So it's helpful for drilling down, but really it can't be the key book that you'd read on the cross. It, the key book really would be this one. But now and not yet. So Scott, we've seen quite a lot. We found out that none of us wants to see how Stella got her groove back, uh, but I do like Star Wars. Uh, we've talked about pronouns. Should I put pronouns in my bio? Oh my mm. gosh. I'm fearing the comments and responses we may get to that. But it's, it's a thing we need to talk about. It's a must-have conversation. We've also talked about the differences between systematic and biblical theology. Great differences. It's, it's not an either-or, it's a both-and. Yep. And we've reviewed some good books on practical ministry sub- subjects and also on the atonement. So it's been a great week. Yeah, sounds great, mate. Well, to all our friends out there, don't forget to subscribe, like, leave a comment, and check us out on all the other various platforms. Until next time, see you then. The Now and Not Yet, the show that keeps you plugged into everything Bible and theology.